0: Support for today's episode comes from Audible. Audible is offering my listeners a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership. Just go to audible.com forward slash elevator or text elevator to 500 500 to get started today. Recovery Elevator, episode 174.
1: Addiction works like that, and that's how people can relapse after years and years and years because the addiction just sits there and waits and it learns your, you know, your recovery portfolio. And it basically waits to see where the hole is. And that's when when it gets you.
0: Welcome to the recovery elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,370 days. On today's podcast, we've got Kim. She's 37 years old. She's from Arkansas. She's been sober since New Year's Eve 2017, and she's an addictions counselor. Wow, what a great fit for this podcast interview. Before we get started with today's topic, there's a couple things I'd like to announce. Their first one being, there is a third Eye Blind concert in Denver, Colorado on July 22nd that you should probably go to. I say that because I'm going to it. There's a bunch of us from Cafe RE that are going to go to it. And it's going to be awesome. Why? Well, because it's third eye blind. Really no convincing needed. And if you go to the concert, I would love to meet you in person. I'm going to be the guy wearing the third eye blind shirt and then, wait a second. I think like half the crowd is going to be wearing a third eye blind shirt. Let's Let's swap that plan. I'm going to be the guy wearing a recovery elevator shirt. Yeah. Let's go with recovery elevator shirt. Yeah. I'm that guy. Yeah, and if you're at the concert, come up, say hello. We'll have a LaCroix soda water together. It's gonna be an awesome concert. The second thing is, I wanna talk about some future plans for Cafe RE. This is my personal favorite resource in recovery. If you're not familiar with the current format, they are intimate groups on Facebook. Currently, I have two groups, one about 225, and the other one about 250. These groups will be capped at 300. Why not go over 300? Well, I found out previously that if you get groups over 300 in like the 500 range, intimacy is kind of compromised. It's hard to really throw it out there, really put it on the line of what you're emotionally needing when the group is, is like four five, 600 people. So I found the best format is to cap the groups under 300 to ensure the intimacy is still in the group. So here's the big change that we're going to make that is going to be awesome. I'm planning on adding a forum that's going to link all the groups together. Currently, I have a member listing where Cafe members have access to. You know, There might be somebody in the other group that lives just five blocks away from them and I've actually heard about this story. So I need to figure out a different way to connect the two people because in my opinion, the opposite of addiction is connection and that's what this forum is going to do. And Facebook is great. I like it. We are making technology work for us. But there are people that want to join Cafeery that don't have Facebook. They don't want to get on Facebook for reasons I totally understand and respect. And one of my columns about Facebook is we've seen these posts, these huge posts where people put like you know tremendous breakthroughs in their recovery in a video format or in word format in Facebook group. And after a couple days, these monumental posts, these breakthroughs, they just go further and further down the newsfeed until they're almost impossible to find. So in the forum, this stuff will be easier to find in the long term. In the forum, we can break people down geographically where they're located in America, where they're located across the world. We can do it by age, by sex, by sobriety time. There's some really cool options that we can do with this forum, and I cannot wait. I will be having to bump my virtual assistant named Maddie, who is based in the Philippines from part-time to full-time. Maddie does a fantastic job. She handles all the registration, does all the admin, the member listing, etc. So I don't know if it's going to be more than $14 a month when we launch the forum, but if you sign up soon, you're going to be locked in at that rate. Oh yeah. One more thing. I know I said two things, but who cares? Here's the third thing. I'm real excited about this. I just sent the deposit check-in to lock in dates for the Bozeman, Montana 2019 retreat. Dates are August 14th to August 18th. We added an extra day. We are going to up the game. It goes from Wednesday to Sunday. This is going to be fun. I'm thinking registration is going to open on, I don't know, 1-1-2019. What a great day to sign up for a recovery retreat. Okay, let's get started. I want to talk to you guys today about compassionate curiosity. That's how Dr. Gabor Maté calls it in his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Compassionate curiosity is a way we can get to the root to find out why we drink. And before I continue, I want to share a quote. The problem's not that the truth is harsh, but that liberation from ignorance is as painful as being born. Run after truth until you're breathless. Accept the pain involved in recreating yourself afresh. Naguib Mahfouz. How do we achieve compassionate curiosity? What does it look like? Well, Pema Chodron, and she is the author of one of my favorite books, When Things Fall Apart, has a couple words to say about that. She says that being able to lighten up is the key to feeling at home with your body, mind, and emotions, to feeling worthy of living on this planet. In addition to a sense of humor, a basic support for a joyful mind is curiosity, paying attention. Happiness is not required, but being curious without a heavy judgmental attitude helps. If you are judgmental, you can even be curious about that. So personally, there has always been this holy grail type of question of why. Why did I drink? And why did addictions and addictive behaviors show up in my life well after quitting alcohol? Posed in a tone of compassionate curiosity, why? Transformed from rigid accusation to an open-minded, even scientific question. Instead of hurling an accusatory brick at your head, And this can internally sound like, I'm such an idiot for drinking today. I promised myself last night I wouldn't drink for the rest of my life, and now I'm drinking. I'm such a dumbass. The question of why I did this again, knowing full well of the negative consequences, can be the subject of a healthy internal conversation. But it has to be without judgment. It has to be done with compassionate curiosity, with love for yourself while asking this question. So then, and only then, will we be able to look internally and figure out the why. Dr. Gabor Mate calls this compassionate curiosity. So don't ask yourself this question while internally wearing a customs uniform or someone with an imaginary badge. Let your five-year-old self ask you this question with curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love. The purpose of bringing your five-year-old self, aka your soul, on board with this question is in hopes not to justify or rationalize, but to understand. Justification is another form of judgment every bit as debilitating as blame. When we justify, we aim to win the internal judge's favor. The goal of internal justification is to absolve the self of responsibility. This can look like, I drink because everybody else sucks at driving. My wife doesn't get it. I drink because my classes at school suck. I drink because my job, well, I'm not getting paid as much as I should be getting paid. I drink because the weather ruined my barbecue this weekend. I drink because Tom on my bowling team's a dick. I drink because my shoelace broke. I drink because my entire life I called Asa Base my own. They're not from America. They're from Sweden. Damn it. You get the point. Understanding helps assume responsibility. When we don't have to defend ourselves against others, and most importantly ourselves, we are open to seeing how things really are. I, then, am able to own it and can see the many ways this addictive behavior continues to sabotage my life. Dr. Mate continues to state incompleteness is the baseline state of the alcoholic. The addict believes either with full awareness or unconsciously that he is not enough as he is, he's is unable to face life's demands or present an acceptable front to the world. He's unable to tolerate his own emotions without chemical supports. He must escape the painful experience of the void within with any activity that fills his mind with even temporary purpose. Go ahead and cue alcohol right about now. Recovery elevator. It took me 1,366 days of sobriety to figure out why I drank, probably because the previous 1,280 days I was looking externally and only until recently up until about the past 10 weeks was I willing and able to look internally. Recently, through meditation, I was able to push through a fictional veneer my ego had created, and this was painful. The question I had been asking myself daily for the past 15 years had been resolved. Why was I unable to answer this question the previous 10,000 times I had asked it? Well, I hadn't asked with compassionate curiosity. While meditating, I was able to ask in a soothing, non-judgmental tone. And I got it. Also, I'm not quite ready to talk about it yet on this podcast because I'm still wrapping my head around it. There was a false narrative, a false reality that had been with me for 30 plus years. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But in an upcoming episode, I will go into depth of why I drank. As Gabriel Mate says it, there's no moving forward without breaking through the walls of denial. And before we hear from Kim, let's hear from today's sponsor, Audible. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, sunbathing on the beach, running, road trip, enjoying downtime outdoors, and more. Listening is a better way to binge content you love while doing things you love. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, which lets you fill your summer with more books like In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabber Mate. You can get through tons of books, hands and eyes free, while doing almost anything. I personally love audiobooks because I can work on my recovery while driving. Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook in our store, regardless of price. And unused credits roll over to the next month. Didn't like your audiobook? You can exchange it. No questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Start a 30 day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com forward slash elevator or text elevator to 500 500. Again, Audible is offering the Recovery Elevator podcast listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com forward slash elevator, that's E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R, and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. It's that easy. Go to audible.com forward slash elevator or text elevator to 500-500 to get started today. Okay, and now let's hear from Kim. Kim, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. How are you, Paul?
0: doing fantastic thank you so much for joining me Kimberly let's get right into this how long have you been sober
1: I have been sober for 143 days
0: oh if my math is correct there's uh, there's 31 days in January there's 31 days in March that's uh, December 31st 2017 <laughs> That is perfect. I just get you got listeners uh, she told me it, it was a uh, yeah December 31st uh, don't you mean in January 1st 2018
1: That was the original plan, but I decided that I should do it a day early because I would be less likely to keep with it if I was hungover on January 1st.
0: I love that reasoning. I love hearing sobriety dates that are like Christmas Eve, the day before Thanksgiving, the day before or on New Year's Eve. Those are are like colossal sobriety dates. And I re- I recall the same thinking in 2012, I was in Costa Rica and I, uh, yeah, my sobriety date, I lasted 10 months, but it was January 31st and it was that, I, kind of the same thinking. It's like, if I go so big tonight, I can just see like me drinking the next morning to make a hangover going away. And yeah, and, and good, good on you for giving yourself a good shot. And here we are on you know, May 22nd over a hundred days later. That's, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, Thank we were going to cover all that stuff, but before we get any further, you can really give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, but most importantly, what do you like to do for fun?
1: So I am 37 years old. Right now I'm calling from Palm Springs, California. Oh,
0: you poor soul. I know.
1: You guys need to feel so sorry for me. Um, I'm actually on vacation, but I am from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I am married. In June, it will be eight years. I work as a licensed professional counselor. I'm also a certified expert trauma professional and an anger management treatment provider. I work full-time. I am also one of the owners for the private practice I work at. I'm pretty busy. I've also got three kids, two-year-old twins and a four-year-old. And so for fun, it's generally hanging out with my family. But on the rare occasions when I actually get to just hang out, I like to read. And I also do this fun hobby called Kinsuji. Are you familiar with it?
0: No, no. Tell us more about that.
1: It is an ancient uh, Japanese art form that it uh, means uh, golden joinery. It's where you take uh, broken ceramics and pottery and you fuse it back together. And then with the cracks, you actually paint over gold so that you actually highlight the, the flaws of it instead of hiding it which I think is a, a wonderful metaphor for trauma and also addiction. Wow.
0: That, that's, that's neat. And, uh, you, know, you said the anger management courses. I'm, I'm guessing that was a derivative of, of those practices. But I, I see how that can A, be very meditative, piecing it back together you know, into creative artwork, but also recognizing that something is perfect just the way it is. That is so cool.
1: Well, and also that you can become stronger from the, the cracks and the flaws and
0: actually become more beautiful. Wow. Wow. I mean that that is a phenomenal metaphor within you know under 4 minutes of this interview that is so applicable to life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean we we can be completely shattered hit our rock bottom moments and then piece ourselves together one piece at a time to be even stronger than ever. Boom, interview done. Nice job, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fantastic.
1: I it, love working with metaphors and so I find that When you can put imagery to something, it just can be so much more powerful.
0: Yeah, it's constructive. You're building something. It's, gosh, I love it. And what was that called one more time? Kinsuji. Kinsuji. Is is there like a framework people can follow or they can just like, can they just knock over the vase on their desk, grab some glue and put it back together?
1: I think one of the most fun parts is actually the, the breaking of the piece. i found that if you double bag it, that way you don't lose any of the pieces. But you can actually uh, go on uh, YouTube and find videos for how to do it, either the traditional way or a cheaper way. And there are also techniques you can use even if you miss the pieces, which is another beautiful metaphor because then you've just got more uh, gold in there and, and makes your piece that much more beautiful.
0: Yeah, screw book club, guys. Seven o'clock on Wednesday. Bring two bags, something you can break, and we're gonna have some fun. Awesome. See you there. <laughs> this is cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's uh, let's chat a little bit more about the drinking. Describe your drinking habits, right? You're 37. Take us back to a time when you know you first started to realize that, uh oh, maybe alcohol's not as healthy as I thought.
1: Well, I have kind of a, an interesting story as far as my elevator going down. I have a really rare vascular disorder which makes pregnancy difficult and I found myself pregnant with uh, twins in 2015. Fast forward to December of 2015, I wound up having to put my uh, 18-year-old cat down. I also developed this really rare liver condition where I was producing so much bile that it went into my bloodstream. And I went into preterm labor. The twins were seven weeks premature. Wow. I wound up uh, having to have an emergency C-section, doing a vertical incision, which is extremely rare. The recovery was awful. And then from that, I wound up having to have four procedures within the span of a year. Oh, wow. And so what happened was they put me on lots and lots of, pain medications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I noticed a significant change in not being able to stop my drinking after going through that whole process with the the pain pills. So I, I noticed prior to going through all of this that I would have these patterns where I think oh, my drinking's kind of getting out of control. Nothing significantly bad happened, but it was more just like, I don't really like the direction this is going. And then I would just stop and I wouldn't drink for a while. And it wasn't that big of a deal. But after going through the pain pills and all the surgery, my plan was I was just going to quit drinking January 1st, 2017. And I realized I couldn't stop. And once I realized I couldn't stop, it seemed like that's when the drinking habits really started to pick up and freak me out.
0: So when did you realize that you couldn't stop? Because when we realize, A, we can't stop, there's a lot of other things that come to light. So, yeah, when was that?
1: It was probably within the first couple of months of of 2016, or 2017, I apologize. Okay, okay. Yeah. I had this moment where, you know, I had woken up that morning and was like, ugh, I am so done with this, you know, what the heck just happened? And then I found myself that evening, I was walking up the stairs to go and pour myself a drink, thinking, you know, I don't even want a drink. Like, I felt like my legs were on autopilot, and I almost couldn't stop them, and it really freaked me out.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, so what were, your, what were your drinking habits like? What how much were you drinking? Did you put any rules in the place?
1: <laughs> that, that question always makes me laugh. So,
0: me too, um, actually. I'm glad we're on the same page there. <laughs> I got to say it with a straight well, face, but that's one of those questions that I might just eliminate moving forward. I've thought a lot about that, but keep going. Well, forward.
1: I have, I actually have a different answer to that. So because of my training with addictions, I know that, that, people who struggle with addictions put rules in place and so my addiction blinders went up and I said well you know obviously I don't have have a, a problem because I I don't put any rules in place <laughs> <which I don't laughs> drink whenever oh, and sneaky
0: uh, I love right
1: it. right so as far as how much I was drinking I didn't really measure it I was drinking vodka at the time and I I want to say I got up to a point where I was probably going through a half gallon of vodka a week. Mm,
0: gotcha. And and, and then were there any attempts before New Year's Eve 2017 to quit?
1: Throughout 2017, I would string probably anywhere from three days to seven days to ten days, but nothing really stuck.
0: Gotcha. And you know, I've, I've done those before, too, where I'm like, I'm just going to, like like— try to try to quit and see how, you know, how hard it's going to be. Yeah. And so like, you know, what did you learn about yourself during those three, five and 10 day attempts, which I mean, those are, that's a lot of time too. So congratulations with that. That's all sober time. Yeah. But what were, Um, what were some valuable lessons you learned during those times?
1: One of the things that was really frustrating for me is I have one of those personalities where if I put my mind to something, I do it and I do it 110%. And, you know, I always tell people, watch out. If you tell me I can't do something, I will, you know, I'll prove you wrong. And so when I had put my mind to to quitting drinking, I started to realize this is one of those scenarios where it doesn't matter how strong my willpower is. It was almost just like I I couldn't do it. And it was so scary.
0: Talk to me more about what you just said, how it's so scary because I I went through the same thing. I had two and a half years of sobriety and then I went back in the hamster wheel again and I it, it got to a point, I, I kept telling myself, like, it'll be good, I've done this before and then I got to the point where, oh my God, I can't do this and it was terrifying. So tell me, about, tell me more about what that was like for you.
1: That is actually what pushed me to the point to start doing research on different podcasts and that's mm-hmm. when I came across okay. your podcast because I was thinking, okay, I know other people have, have gone through this before. I know other people have, have beat this, but I have, you know, I can't, I can't rely on myself alone. And that's normally how I do everything is I figure out how to do stuff on my own. And when I realized I couldn't, my first thought was, well, I'll just, I'll look on, on Google. I'll, I'll read some more. I'll, I'll listen to the podcasts. And as I started listening to your podcast, and I heard so many similarities to the struggles I was having, and I heard people's stories about the bottoms they hit, that even terrified me even more because I haven't had any significant consequences from it. I haven't had any DUIs. And my, uh, my work actually, uh, I wound up making double what I had made the previous year in 2017. So work hadn't been hit hard either. But in my, in my mind, I knew if I was gonna keep going in this direction, I I was starting to hear stories of what my story was going to become, and that made me even more terrified. Hmm,
0: But good on you. You were able to play the tape forward way farther forward than just the next day. When I say play the tape forward, that's one of my favorite recovery tools is when I have a thought of taking a drink, I'm like, okay, I know it's not going to be just one tooth. It's going to be a lot, but you're able to play the tape forward like six months, a year, two years down the road good for mm-hmm. you because I fully believe in the yet scale right like all that yes. stuff it has not happened to me yet um, yeah nice job thank you yeah and so how how did you do it how did you do it on New Year's Eve uh, did you lock yourself in your house or did you go to New Year's <laughs> Eve party like yeah that's that's a that's a tough day nice job how'd you do it
1: well one of the things that that I worked on was trying to, since I have some education on working with addictions, one of the things I realized was I needed to get rid of as many of the triggers as I could that would lead me to want to to drink. And I knew that my biggest trigger was coming home from work every night. So like I said, we've got three small kids and prior to 2018, what the schedule was, was I would finish work at five from a, you know, full day. Um, Probably 90% of my caseload is trauma-based. And so it's hour after hour after hour of listening to people struggling with trauma, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty stressful day. And then I go and pick up my children who'd be ready to eat the second we got home. But I, since I'd been working, I didn't have any time to, to cook. And so I'd get home and try to pull dinner together and they'd be going crazy. And my initial instinct was, okay, I just need to get get some alcohol, just calm the the stressors down. And so my first step was figuring out how I could eliminate some of that stress. And so I wound up actually um, hiring someone who works at the school to pick up the kids and bring them home from school. So that I could have dinner ready and waiting when they came home and just doing that helped me tremendously
0: hmm that's like being r- proactive in your recovery for seeing yourself being in difficult situations I mean you yeah you hired somebody to or put somebody in place to to set yourself up in a better position that's that's awesome yeah and and, and so this is awesome guys we've got somebody who's extremely knowledgeable his you know, licensed in addiction and training and correct me if I'm getting this wrong but there's a thing called secondary trauma. Have you heard of that? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I'm I'm sure you have. How do you deal with that? And for listeners, again, correct me if I'm wrong. The secondary trauma is, you know, people in your position, you can sit in a chair for eight hours a day and just have stuff like unloaded on you, which is your profession. But you also got to watch out for you at the end of the day, whether you want it or not, like that stuff kind of goes through your energy fields and and gets you. How do you, how do you deal with that? That's got to be tough. And how do you watch out for you?
1: The best way I know how to handle that is by using another metaphor, that when you give to others, what you want to make sure that you do is that you fill up your teacup first, mm-hmm. so much so that it spills over into your saucer, and then you can give to others from your saucer. So mm-hmm. the the more that I take care of myself, meaning, you know, meditation and, and exercise and um, I'm a big fan of the Miracle Morning, doing all those different components, uh, so that when I show up in the office, I'm not giving from my 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 teacup. I'm giving from my saucer. Now, 2017, <laughs> I was giving from my teacup and not my saucer, and I was starting to feel really, really burnout.
0: And 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 listeners, Hal Elrod has a book called 5 a.m. The Miracle Morning. I love that. We actually did this workshop at the Bozeman Retreat in 2017. And good news, we booked 2019 retreats in August. Um, And I I love your metaphor with that because there was a time more than seven weeks ago where I I was given from the bottom of my my, my teacup. (laughs) I had nothing in the saucer. So I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah, and and, and walk us through the, the first week, the first two weeks, the first month You know, did you experience cravings? What did you do? And just tell us about that experience.
1: So the first week and really the first month were extremely difficult. I had lots and lots of cravings. I would notice them coming on as I was driving home from work. But one of the things that really helped me out was I would remind myself that I had put so many plans in place. You know, I had someone bringing the the kids home, and I just worked so hard for this that if I were to to drink alcohol, that 2018 would be no different than 2017. And a lot of times, that would help me get through it. But also another thing that was extremely helpful was in November. I went to a training on using this therapeutic technique called brain spotting, um, using it with addictions. Mm-hmm. And this was the first training that I had been to on addiction that was given by someone who was actually in recovery herself. And I don't think that it was a coincidence that this was really the only training that I've actually used in my profession with addictions. All the stuff that I had learned previously just did not work, other than recommending that my clients go to AA. And so this one was was really helpful. And one of the things that stood out to me from that training was talking about the importance of externalizing the addiction. I know you call your addiction Gary. Mm -hmm. Well, she told this story. uh, She's from Australia, and she told this story about going to a pearl farm in New Zealand. And they were talking about how nasty the the crocodiles are out there and how they don't really have a whole lot of options for food. And they need to uh, change around their daily habits for checking for the pearls because the crocodiles are so smart that they can hide and wait and that that you won't even see them, but they learn your, your schedule And they wait until you're the most vulnerable. And that's when they approach. Wow. And so she was talking about how addiction works like that. And that's how people can relapse after years and years and years, because the addiction just sits there and waits and it learns your, you know, your recovery portfolio and it basically waits to see where the hole is. And that's when, when it gets you. And so that, that story really, really stuck with me. And so early on in my sobriety, I uh, bought this bracelet that has just a little crocodile on it. And it's got my sobriety date on the back of it. Mm-hmm. And anytime time I would start to, to feel that craving or think, oh, man, you know, a drink would be so nice. I'd just look at that bracelet. And it would all kind of come back to me and remind me, well, yeah, that's the crocodile right now. It's waiting for you to, to get vulnerable so that it can, can get you. And that has really helped. I haven't taken it off.
0: Yeah, that I love that. I just wrote it down on a notepad. We're going to be hearing about crocodiles in upcoming podcast episodes. <laughs> so, so <laughs> well, pretty- it, it
1: makes me laugh because there was one episode where you were talking about Trying to pet a crocodile, and I was just laughing so hard with the metaphor. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I was hammer faced in in Bolivia in the rainforest. Yeah, that could have ended up real bad. <laughs> but so so brain spotting, it doesn't involve like electrodes taped to your head. It's actually no just like mapping things out on paper.
1: Brain spotting, it's it's my my clients always laugh at me because I am so passionate about it. It's a it's a fairly new therapeutic technique, but it's it's a, a neurophysiological tool that you use in therapy that is kind of like targeted mindfulness and gets you aware of your body. But it's really, really helpful with trauma and addiction for kind of unlinking the, the negative neuronal pathways. It's absolutely fascinating. It's not like a, a magic cure for addiction, but it is extremely helpful. I mean, I've heard of stories of, of people maintaining sobriety after, you know, three or four sessions of, of the brain spotting now that they also need to to keep up with, with their recovery portfolio. Like I said, it's not just a a magic pill or anything, but it's extremely helpful. I would recommend people look into it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. of, Of course. That's kind of what this podcast is geared towards is finding resources you know, out of the box resources in episode one seventy, mm-hmm. we covered a covered a big one. This is big too. And what is a, like a like a one hour session? How long does it take? Like, what does a session look like? And do you it's, do you go on Google and find different. somebody who does this? Is this an online course? Tell you, us more about it.
1: You can go to brainspotting dot com, and it will give you a brief summary of what all it entails and how it was developed. And on that website, it has a list of people who are either certified in it or are at least trained in it. I'm not certified, but I have training mm. in it. Yes, yeah, so, It is absolutely fascinating. What is, uh, like, one of the things that I've like. noticed, it's basically so you wear a pair of headphones and you listen to what's called bilateral music, mm. which goes back and forth the left and the right ear, and what that does is it lights up the, the left and the right hemisphere of the brain, mm-hmm. and that has a real calming effect, which is extremely helpful when you're bringing to mind either traumatic material or material about your addiction. Mm-hmm. And then the therapist helps you to find either a single brain spot or a double brain spot. And we'll hold up a a pointer for you to to focus on the spots. And that actually, it it kind of gets you into what I describe as like a hypnotic state, Hmm. except instead of going into a deep hypnosis and the therapist implanting ideas uh, into your mind, what happens is, is. You get into this state, and it actually just allows the brain to heal itself. The therapist isn't implanting anything into your mind. You just get into a state to where your mind is clear enough to to bring up its own healing. It's absolutely fascinating. Wow.
0: Let me just say that again. You're going into a state where your brain is clear enough where your body, your brain, which in my opinion is the most powerful healing tool we have, where that brain can heal itself. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Perfect, yeah. Wow, and wow. so what I found is in one brain spotting session, I can generally get further than I could in, in ten regular sessions.
0: Wow, wow, that's that's. Uh, I'm keeping my mouth shut. That's that's no, that's that's awesome. <laughs> I, I was able to go with not in brain spotting, but with another technique. I was able to get to that same point. Gosh, I've never heard <laughs> of brain spotting. That is huge. It's going to be in the show notes. And Mike doesn't oh, show notes. Yeah. He'll put a link to Brainspotting.com, Not T R A I N S P O T T I N G. That's a great movie, um, but Brainspotting.com. dot <laughs> com. Yeah, and 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 you know what? If actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears. Um, we've got we've got someone with an amazing background and training uh, with them, and let's let's cover some more stuff with that. Like, have have you been able to come? You, you said so. The gal who did brain spotting, she was open about her recovery. Are you to the point yet? Mm-hmm. With, in with your patients. Because I've done podcast episodes where your background and being in recovery is is a tremendous asset. It is not a liability. Are you able to be open about that with patients?
1: You know, what's funny is uh, I had sent you an email kind of about, I call it like being in the closet about my addiction. And you were the first person to phrase it that way. And it really got me thinking about how I was viewing my own addiction. And I haven't shared it with Every client, I don't know that it's appropriate to do that with every client, but using my clinical judgment, I have in some of the, uh, in, with with some of my clients, and it's actually been pretty magical on both ends. I really feel like the magic of recovery has really come to life since I've been more open about my story and the stuff that I thought would happen hasn't happened, and the most amazing stuff that I could never imagine, like even being on this podcast, you know, it's been extraordinary.
0: So with your addiction background, um, and you're seeing these, these counselors, what, what are the hangups, the common themes and the common hangups? Cause you see these people daily, right? You've got to be able to develop, mm-hmm. see some consistency, see some things like, okay, this is a major concern. Like what are some consistencies you're seeing?
1: I think the biggest struggle That I'm seeing is number one is the stigma and the shame, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, I'm from Arkansas Bible Belt. I think there's an added layer of shame with alcoholism, but also I've really seen a lot of struggle with higher power and learning to surrender, letting go of control, those type of things.
0: And Kim, where I'm at right now, if I could summarize it with two words, it's, it's control and ego. And the ego does a big portion of the higher power of, of jumping in and saying "Nope, that's not right, um, regardless of higher power or not the ego jumps in and says, "Nope, that can't be right that's outside of my you know the you know, the, the, the like the speed rails of my life that can't be right um ego and control are huge in my opinion
1: sure, I totally agree yeah, and the cool thing is though is when you can let those go, you actually wind up being in way more control than you ever thought you would be it's kind of
0: counterintuitive totally just like you don't realize how
1: out of control you you were
0: (laughs) yeah and it's the same thing like the slower you go the faster you can go if I I dedicate Mm -hmm. the more time I dedicate to my morning meditation you, you know like well then you're taking away time from the rest of your day you would think that but it actually the more the slower I go in the morning the more time I dedicate the more time I have throughout the day it's just you wouldn't think it'd be that way but it is
1: yeah, perfect example of that. So because my life is so busy, I have to get up at 4.30 every morning to do my miracle morning.
0: Bless your heart. And
1: there, right? and there was one weekend where my husband said, you don't have to get up at 4.30 every morning. And so I, I caved in and I slept in until 6 one morning. And it was within 30 minutes of waking up that my husband said, I think you need to get up at 4 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, it is... It is so impactful really to, to slow down and hand that over especially first thing in the morning set your intentions. it's it's amazing what that can do for the rest of your day
0: yeah yeah and in a couple questions before we hit the rapid fire round you know with the with you know with a little over 100 days what have you learned about yourself Kimberly
1: I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned about myself is that I need to show myself the compassion Um, and the love that I show my family, my loved ones and my clients, I, I feel like I've been given a, a a God, God given gift of, of love and compassion. And I, um, prior to recovery, I don't think I was showing that to myself and seeing how important that is.
0: That's huge. And and what would you say your proudest moment in sobriety has been?
1: Probably coming out to, to my clients. I think it takes a lot of courage and, showing your clients that you know even though you've got all this training that you're just as human as the rest of them and allowing them to see your own struggles i mean i don't i don't use my my sessions as as (laughs) therapy for myself but Mm -hmm. just letting them know yeah i'm i'm human too and, and i struggle it's been amazing seeing how impactful that is for other people Wow,
0: showing them that, that you're human and not perfect—it's uh, it's it's hard to do, and I'm proud of you too. That's awesome, and, and Kimberly, you're going to Peru in October. What about this trip gets you excited? With you're going with recovery. Other auditor.
1: than <laughs> yeah, <laughs> other other than just getting to witness the, the beauty out there, really being a part of a recovery community. My my life is so busy. I only get to, to go to one AA meeting a week and I'm rushing to get there and rushing to get back to work. And so I don't, I mean, I have a, a wonderful community at home. It's just not a recovery community. And I think it'll be really, really cool to, to get to experience such a, a wonderful, beautiful environment, but with people who kind of get me and get, get what this struggle has been like.
0: And, hey, we got, the, we got the same reasons why we're going down there. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> um, and, Kimberly, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are, are you ready? I am ready. Number one, Kimberly, what was your worst memory from drinking?
1: Would you mind if I shared two?
0: Do it. Let's go.
1: Okay. I have, I have a, a pre-parent worst memory and then being a parent worst memory. So my worst memory from drinking prior to being a parent was I was 17 years old and went on a vacation with my family to Cozumel, Mexico. It was an all-inclusive resort and my parents lied to the resort and told them I was 18 so that I could drink. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, right. And my brother had brought his girlfriend at the time. And so What wound up happening was at night, my parents would kind of hang out by themselves and my brother and his girlfriend would hang out by themselves. And that kind of left me to my own devices and being a a not so responsible 17 year old that generally left me just hanging out at the bars until they closed. It was the last night of the trip. I had done the same thing where I, I don't know how, how long I was there, but I was there until the bar closed and as I was leaving, uh, someone followed me out from the bar and pulled me behind the bar and sexually assaulted me. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And um, I bring this up not to, to damper the mood of the yeah, interview, but yeah. but more so to talk about, like, the blinders that addiction puts on you, you'd think that something like that would have taught me a really good lesson. And it didn't. I mean, it it didn't prevent me from putting myself in other dangerous positions. And I also bring it up because I'd like to shred the shame of sexual assault and say to any of your listeners that, you know, if this is something that they are struggling with, that there are people out there who can help and that you really want to reach out to a therapist who's trauma-informed because there is a possibility of becoming re-traumatized if your therapist doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, um, and yeah. I'd be more than happy to leave my email address in the, the show notes if you want, if there are people who want to reach out and figure out how to find someone who would be appropriate. yeah. Because we'll, we'll, um, I think that's going to be a big part. If, if someone's struggling with that and also wants to work on sobriety, that's going to be a, a big piece that you need to tackle.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure we get your email address in the show notes. Um, and you're right, it needs to be talked about. Don't apologize for yeah. bringing this up because – that's, that's a direct result of alcohol, and it needs to be talked about. And, uh, yeah, what was, the, uh, what was the other memory post?
1: So the, the other one, which you think it couldn't be, be worse, but for me it's actually worse, was towards the end of my drinking, it, it had gotten to the point where my oldest, my 4-year-old, he might have been 3 at the time, um, had seen me drinking so much, and I used to drink from, like, a plastic cup with a, a straw that he used to ask me to pour him water in not a similar plastic cup, but like a smaller plastic cup and would ask for a straw with it. <laughs> and that just thinking back on it now, like I thought it was kind of funny at the time, but thinking back on it now just breaks my heart. And, and I hope that's something that he never remembers. Um, but that's something also that reminds me of the, the blinders that go on with addiction.
0: Yeah, and and Kimberly, with over 100 days, what's your plan moving forward in sobriety?
1: One, I'd really like to be a voice for recovery with mental health professionals in my community. I'd like to be open with my story just so that other people have a safe place to come to if they want to kind of explore their own sobriety. Uh, I had one of my uh, therapy friends call alcohol a, a form of self-care with therapists and I think that there's uh, some truth to that that you know with everything that we hear day in and day out I think a lot of us go to kind of numbing out and turning things off with alcohol and I, I think it could, could be really helpful for for people to have a safe place to come and talk with someone um, while they're kind of exploring whether or not they they would like to, to quit.
0: I love it and, and Kimberly what's your favorite resource in recovery?
1: I have three. So my first one, and we haven't even tapped on it, would would be God and, and Jesus Christ. I could not do this without them. Um, my faith is extremely strong, and it it really helps me in my deepest, darkest moments. Mm-hmm. My second one is the, the Miracle Morning. I I do it every single morning. I did it this morning. No matter what, it just that really seems to help set my intention for the day. And then also the Recovery Elevator podcast. I I look forward to to listening every Monday morning, and you know I I binge listen to all the episodes prior to the the new ones, especially during the beginning parts of of my sobriety.
0: Well, thank you for listening. I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. And, and in regards to sobriety, Kimberly, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: I think the best advice would be that you can't do this alone. I am a master of of doing everything on my own, this independent to to a T. And this was one thing that I could not do on my own. Like I said, the the magic really happened when I reached out and started letting people in.
0: And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in sobriety or thinking about getting sober?
1: I would really like to share a quote that I share with, with my clients. It's a Carl Jung quote. And it is what you resist persists, what you can feel, you can heal.
0: Ah, oh, I love it. I love it. And before we depart, Kimberly, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line.
1: You might be an alcoholic if while listening to someone else's, you might be an alcoholic if line. You catch yourself thinking, oh, I need to remember that in case I relapse. <laughs>
0: Uh, we're all helping each other. I love it. You can really thank you so much for being part of the Recovery Elevator Podcast. I cannot wait to meet you in October in Peru. Likewise.
1: Thank you so much, Paul.
0: I'd like to give a shout out to Trisha A for hitting ten months of sobriety. Yesterday, a nice job. Anxiety. Anxiety is a total bitch. Anxiety told me the gig was up, it was time to quit drinking, and Anxiety also said we can't stop drinking because this anxiety we're feeling is too painful. Thank goodness. In sobriety overall, my anxiety levels are nowhere near the acute anxiety that I experienced before quitting drinking. I can't say for everyone, but if you're going to get sober, or you are sober, anxiety is just going to be part of the game in the next podcast episode, we're going to go into a little bit more depth about what this anxiety is. Does it serve a purpose? Do you need to act on it? Do some of these emotions just need to flow through you with no actions done at all? How do you do it? What is this anxiety and why is it so painful? Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.